Welcome to Academic Trek, a podcast about academic research in Star Trek. My name is Daniel and I'm your host. The introduction music is by the Beverly Crushers. You can find them on Bandcamp and that's from uh, their new album, Sick Bay. Today's guest is Ina Ray Hark. Um, so yeah, thank you for joining me. Um, today we're going to talk a little bit about um, your your essay, which is um, Occupied Space, The Contested Habitation of Terraknor slash Deep Space Nine. So my first question, which is my sort of stock question for everyone, is why Trek? Well, um, it, why Trek is that uh, the original series started when I was in high school, when I was a senior in high school. And my physics teacher, every uh, Friday, it broadcast on Thursdays, every Friday talked about the science of whatever episode was screening. And I didn't like science fiction at the time, but I didn't want to be le left out of the class. So I started watching. Took me actually to What Are Little Girls Made Of, which because I was not into science fiction tropes, I had no idea they were going to turn out to be androids. And I thought it was the coolest thing. Uh, and I kept watching and loved it more and more. And I, I watched it when I went off to college. Uh, an old college friend uh, of mine uh, ran into a, a academic colleague of mine and said that she had known me way back when. And my friend said, oh, what was she like? And she said, she was a Trekkie before they had a name for them. <laughs> so, so that's Right, that you know, and and that's a particular time of your life when things that you love s sort of stick. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. So uh, on at this moment, I'm going to take the chance to read your small your bio, um, just to give people a sort of bit more of an introduction to you in your academic side, I guess. So, um, okay. Ina Ray Hark received her PhD in English from UCLA in 1975 and spent the next 33 years on the faculty of the University of South Carolina, retiring as Distinguished Professor of English and Film Studies. She also served as Associate Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and founded the College's Film Studies Program. Hart published her first Star Trek article, Star Trek and Television's Moral Universe, in 1979, and subsequently, subsequently even, has written a number of pieces on the franchise before authoring the BFI Television Classics volume on the Trek series in 2008. She has spent the pandemic year completing three Trek essays in forthcoming books, one on TOS, one on TNG, and one on DS9. Fantastic. So a little question, 1979, a very sort of early for, for academic research in Trek. Was you a bit of a trailblazer? Yeah, pretty early. Uh, uh, Karen Blair's book had been out, yep. uh, Meaning in Star Trek. So. I, and I read that and I knew there was a model for it, but it was pretty early. I, I doubt there were 10, more than 10 academic publications on Star Trek when mine came out. So sort of early. Okay. And what was the reaction when, you know, to you as an academic looking at Trek? Was it, was it hard work to convince people or? Let's say I waited until I had tenure before I started publishing on it. 
<laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about one of your articles today, one of your latest articles, um, uh, which is um, Occupied Space, the Contested Habitation of Terek Noor slash Deep Space Nine. And this is going to be in, a, in uh, Science Fiction Television and the Politics of Space, which is a forthcoming presentation, uh, publication, rather. So firstly, um, the essay references Henri Lefebvre extensively. Could you briefly discuss his ideas and the ideas that relate to this essay? Sure. Um, Lefebvre is a theorist of space as a concept, uh, particularly of space uh, and social relations and political relations. And I particularly um, liked two of his preoccupations that, that I read about. One is the idea that there is Earth, which is you know, a planetary ground or someplace that, that you are that nature created, and then everything else that man put on top of it, which he calls world. And for spaces like a space station or you know some constantly orbiting spaceship or what have you, my dog, um, that you have world, but you have no you have no earth because there's no ground. So I'm very interested. Uh, that's probably the major interest uh, in Lefebvre is how that applies to science fiction because there's lots of places like that uh, in science fiction and even in real life now. Um, and secondly, uh, he talks about a social space, uh, which is a kind of idealized Marxist community, and that it is not fixed to either world or ground, but consists of flows of people, information, uh, whatever you have it, and that I see uh, the station, Tarek Noor, later Deep Space Nine, uh, as one of these focal points, because everybody passes through it, it's near a wormhole where people transition there, people come and go on the station, I, that's why I started looking at the idea of occupation. Um, and so those are probably the two main themes he talks about that I'm interested in uh, regarding science fiction and Deep Space Nine. Okay, fantastic. So, yeah, so there's, there's that, that split between a, a planet or a piece of ground, I suppose you could call it, and these transient spaces which Deep Space Nine sort of fits into. Yes. Okay, fantastic. Um, okay, so... Um, well, let's, let's dive in a little bit and talk about, um, in the essay, you talk a lot about occupation. And could you talk about how the series deals with this? Um, so with the end of the Cardassian occupation in Emissary and the end of the Dominion attempts to occupy the Alpha Quadrant in what we leave behind one and two. Could you talk about occupation, the nature of occupation in general, and how the two occupations are depicted within the series? Sure. Um... The consideration in Deep Space Nine is primarily who gets to claim the space as theirs and themselves as legitimate inhabitants of this space. And the different species have kind of different ideas about space. Um, for the Bajorans, it's more typical of what we also as humans act like, which is it's your homeland, it, you know, you're, you're rooted to it somehow. Uh, and it's important that you have that. And the uh, Bajorans, the ones that aren't being occupied in, in this colonial, 
brutal colonialist occupation on their home worlds have been sent out into a diaspora and, and you know feel dispossessed and that kind of stuff. So that's very important to them. Whereas um, for the Dominion and for the Cardassians, the Cardassians are defensive occupiers. So, you know, somebody might come and get them uh, so that they are going, to, and they also are resource poor. So they need to take over lots of planets uh, in order to have a sort of protected ring around themselves um, and that they can get resources that they need. And if they need proxies to get these, they don't necessarily have to show up with full troops, although they will, and they have the, you know, the threat of, of occupying like that. Um, and the Dominion who, you know, end up occupying Cardassia are even more paranoid uh, because they started out as a very weak species who could be easily killed by enemies and uh, sort of evolved themselves into having all these protective layers of the Jem'Hadar and, and the uh, Vorta whom they create, they literally create. Um, and they don't, their home is the Great Link. They are their own home. And so the Great Link can be up on a planet, and if they need, as, you know, as they do during the series, to pull up and go, you know, rain down on some other place and have their liquid uh, society, that's fine too. They have no love for planets, uh, but they're they themselves as a, as a home, they feel always under duress and pressure, and and the possibility of being overcome. So that's why they want other people's homelands and that's why they want to crush resistance and everything. Uh, it's almost really totally uh, defensive. So, you know, if they get kicked out of one place, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. Whereas for both the Bajorans and the Cardassians, it's wait, wait, no, you, can, you can't have this place. This is mine. I have to stay in it. So um, that's kind of a difference in the occupations. And of course, for the Bajorans have, you know, massive deaths and, and a pseudo holocaust because the Cardassians are so ruthless in exploiting them and their resources. Uh, whereas what happens with the Dominion is when they pick up stakes, they sure don't have any need for you, particularly if you've crossed them. And so they attempt a almost complete genocide of the Cardassians. Okay, yeah, interesting. So, yeah, so although the occupations in some ways mirror each other, maybe, there's very different... Um, reasons for doing it. The Cardassians come to Bajor as, as colonialist occupiers. Uh, you know, we know a lot about colonialism from Earth, and it's clearly a, 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 an analogy to that. Uh, whereas the Dominion are just always, you know, when they see a threat, they have to counter it. And when the wormhole opens into their territory, they see a humongous big threat. And so they, they need foothold. And they need to get everybody in the Alpha Quadrant neutralized, so to speak. And because the Cardassians have lost this war with the Klingons, are in desperate, des more desperate shape than their usual resource poor shape. Um, Del Ducat, um, not a guy who has good judgment, uh, and who was the former uh, colonialist governor, so to speak, of, uh, of Bajor says, hey, Dominion guys, you want a toehold in the Alpha Quadrant? Come live on our planet. Obviously, big mistake is he finds out to his sorrow. <laughs> okay, so um, so that's sort of talked a little bit about occupation and, and the way that, that it's shown. You point out also that DS9 or Teroknor, whichever you want to 
want to pick is not a planet or a country. And so that creates a sort of different dynamic that sits maybe above or sort of separate to the occupation or the occupations we look, look at in the series. Well, I mean, it gets occupied a lot. It changes a lot even during the series. Uh, but it can't see, be seen to be related totally to, to some homeland because there isn't right. any land. Uh, you know, space out in space, space without a ground. Um, and whose is it? You know, yes, the Cardassian, you know, Cardassian said we need a space station. They have a lot of space stations, so does the Federation, I'm sure. Most of the big powers do. Uh, and so the Cardassians get Bajoran slave laborers to build this place where then the more slaves can process ore, which is the big resource they take out of Bajor. Uh, and when it looks like the cost of maintaining this isn't worth what they're making in profits from the ore, they, they take off and leave, not knowing that the passageway to super resource rich uh, Gamma Quadrant um, is right there. Um, and but then the station stops orbiting Bajor and goes out to be next to the wormhole. Um, and it's Bajor. I mean, they when they leave it, the Bajorans say, "Yay, ours!" But we're a total post-colonial mess. Can you come in Federation and help us? And the shows from the point of view of the Federation, who has nothing to do with building this place, but whose name. Because their naming system is every space station is deep space X, whatever numeral. Um, and the Cardassians, every space station they have is something nor. And did the Bajorans call this place something? You know, it's supposed to be theirs. It's never really quite theirs. And yet they built it as much as the Cardassians did. Uh, so when the series opened, it's like, well, who who's Whose place is this anyhow? Um, and so I found that interesting. Although I think the series ends up saying uh, it's everyone's and no one's, but it is not really grounded in any particular planetary or uh, species identity. Uh, and it's it's a transition point and a, and a way station uh, for what, you know, bad things and good things, but that it's, you can't occupy Deep Space Nine, even though people take it over um, the Cardassians come back with the Dominion and take it over. Um, but it's not the same as occupied Major, and it's not the same as occupied Cardassia, uh, which are planets and which are grounds, Earths. Okay, fantastic. So, talking about the, the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, the, the, the occupation is mentioned in the, the TNG episode, Ensign Row. And, um, and you point out in the essay that. This episode appeared near the end of the first Palestinian Intifada. You then mentioned that once we move to DS9, the Cardassians are recast in some way as analogous to the Nazi. Um, could you talk about how, maybe why and how that change was made and, and also how that affects the dynamics of the series in DS9? Well, I can only speculate, but uh, I think on TNG, it to me was pretty obviously a, an analogy to the plight of the Palestinians and the frustrations of the Palestinians, um, particularly not having a homeland, being in a diaspora, uh, and, and having somebody sitting on land they believe to be ancestrally theirs. 
And, you know, that's fine for one little nice moral parable on TNG. But I don't think American television was exactly ready for a series where the legacy big bad uh, were the Israelis. I mean, no matter, you know, that, that's not something you could sell to everyone in the U.S. Probably you could sell it to some. Um, and I think that they all just swallowed hard and went, oops. <laughs> and so pretty soon, you know, it, it becomes, the, the Cardassians behave like Nazis. But the Cardassians, in the way they were colonialist occupiers, were not Nazis who were not colonialist occupiers, you know, which were like the Dominion. Um, so you just have to pretend you don't notice that, <laughs> as I think what they figured people would do. Um, but the the setup for Cardassia occupying Bajor is not the Nazis, no matter how much they're made to behave like Nazis um, subsequently. So th that that's a little bit of a glitch. <laughs> but I think one they probably had to do. Um, okay. So um, you mentioned Section 31 in the essay and the role they play in fighting the Dominion. Could you sort of discuss what this says about the Federation's reaction to occupation or the fear of occupation? Is there, is there something that we can take from that? And maybe sort of maybe is it almost like a, a re, reinvention of the Bajoran militia? Is it a sort of that sort of thing? Is it a, a guerrilla war? Well, I, th I think that Section 31, and particularly as it gets developed, sort of gets retconned way back into, into the Trek universe's timeline, is to say, oh, yeah, the Federation are noble and great, and this is what they always announce about themselves. And, oh, isn't it terrible that there's an obsidian order or a Tal Shiar and that these other civilizations have these black ops units? Um, and Deep Space Nine is the first to say, uh, yeah, we had one too. <laughs> and maybe, maybe you have to have one. But I don't think it had to do so much with occupations just as, you know, great, great powers have things they don't want to talk about and people who will do them uh, without, you know, it's like in Mission Impossible that you know, everyone will disavow as things go on uh, and you just do it uh, without anyone knowing. So I think that was... Deep Space Nine, in many ways, looked at the utopianism of the next generation, at least as far as the Federation was concerned, and said, yeah, right. Um, and so when things, but the going gets tough, as Cisco says, it's uh, easy to be a saint in paradise. Uh, maybe you don't act so nobly. Uh, and, and let's put a little pressure on the Federation, which has been sitting pretty for you know, all the, all these decades. And let's, let's see what they act like now. And so I think bringing in and introducing Section 31 was to say, yeah, put a little pressure on the Federation. I mean, there's all kinds of stories and, and storylines in Deep Space Nine that say, once your existence is threatened, maybe you're not so lovely and nice. And uh, 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 what's it, Eddington says that the uh, Federation is worse than the Borg, that they assimilate you and you don't even notice. <laughs> So there's a lot of, uh, you know, let's be, not that the Federation is bad or that we should disavow rooting for the Federation, but to be realistic that it's not perfect and that it behaves as, you know, most great powers have to behave, even benevolent ones. 
Okay, great. So we have in, in DS9, we have a sort of, what would I call it? A, a sort of a random thing or a, a chance as a, or a, a sort of unusual entity in the fact, in the sort of role of the wormhole aliens or the prophet. Yeah. They don't seem to fit into maybe sort of the way we can think about occupation and, and sort of, you know, the non-linear, that sort of thing. How do they sort of fit into the overarching occupation story? Where do they, they sit? Um, well, probably the occupation storyline is mostly about humanoids. I think that there maybe is a contrast. They live in time rather than space. I mean, they're located in the wormhole. But really, space doesn't seem to mean much to them. And they exist simultaneously in all time, which we don't. Uh, and so that they're there as the, I would say, as the outlier uh, in a way. Although in their own way, they're colonialists too. I mean, they're sitting there meddling in what happens on, on Bajor. And they're certainly not innocent people, but they're so very different. And they are at least not fixed. And in that way, represent um, the non-Earth, non-groundedness of the space station, which they're next to. Um, so that they're much more free-floating. And the idea of, uh, here's my patch of ground, I'll defend it to the death, is just they would never understand that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's just not something that, not something in the way they think. Okay, do they almost play like a, a sort of neutral, like, like a Switzerland role almost? In, 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 in a way. I mean, I think when they tried to get them into an occupation storyline, and they had them being threatened by the paw race, which, you know, happens in the last few seasons. I think that was a bad decision, and I don't think it really works. Uh, and probably, but they had to have some kind of reason to weaken them, because they could obviously, as they do in the, you know, where they win, <laughs> where they get them off these face nine. It's not call the arms. I'm sorry. Uh Fortune favors the bold, I think. Oh, yeah. Sacrifice is yes. They had to reboot on that. Uh, where they do prevent uh, the Dominion fleet from coming through the wormhole and you know ending the war once and for all. Uh, they're too powerful. So you have to get them preoccupied or shut off <clears throat> or whatever, or you can't have that wonderful two-season war arc because they would fix it. So uh, like the Organians in, in uh, the original series who just say, sorry. Klingons, humans, and fight. <laughs> you, you can skirmish the resources. You cannot have apocalyptic battle because we said no. Uh, and, and it's always difficult if you enter that sort of even most well-meaning alien is that they cut off your plot possibilities. So. Right, yes. Uh, but I think that was a mistake to have them under threat because they do work as, the, if not neutral, but of, of or to combat. They're just not there to be, you know, affected by all these squabblings over who owns what and who who can live where, uh, and they got kind of ruined when they got pulled into that. In my opinion, in your opinion, yes. And <laughs> Star Trek is nothing if not about opinions. Yeah, yes. I try not to assert mine are the only right ones, but you know, Trekkies are famous for thinking their opinions are the. <laughs> okay, so another part of the essay, you say you talk about the concept of home and how that preoccupies the characters on DS9. For instance, Odo longs to discover where he come from. Uh, Garrick yearns to return to Cardassia. Could you talk a little bit about that? So it's almost like we've got this 
overarching sort of powers fighting for occupation. Then we have the more human story of the individuals who are are at, feel at home. I mean, I think um, Cisco in some ways feels very at home on the station, but with, with Odo and Garrett particularly, you know, they feel isolated from their home. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're constantly going against each other. The idea that if you lose your homeland for, you know, for humans, for Bajorans, for certain other species as well, that it is devastating. And sometimes that's losing your culture. Uh, although uh, Garrick, you know, I think wants Cardassia itself. I'm not sure all Cardassians love everything about the home planet, but, but Garrick does. Um, and so he particularly misses that, even if they, you know, would have a bunch of uh, Cardassian expats living somewhere. I don't think that's where he wants to go. I mean, he really wants to go back to Cardassia. Gets to go, ironically, a total ruin. Um, and Odo, it's a mystery of origins. I mean, that, you know, and then the Great Link has this big power for changelings of, you know, them all being part of it. And if you're cut off from it, that, that's very difficult. And at the end of the series, everybody goes home. Mm. Uh, so what Deep Space Nine represents, I, I see as a kind of uh, hopeful possibility of how we think about home, because the idea is wherever you go physically, and it may be a homeland you cherish, there's part of you that is at home with people in that social space that was going through Deep Space Nine. But it, the Deep Space Nine does end with the idea that you don't, uh, the, la the subtitle of the last part of the essay is No Fixed Abode, um, and that it's not a place that you live. I mean, I think closest for this Quark, actually, <laughs> not didn't like Ferenginar and you know, has been on the station practically since it was built. Uh, and Dukai, although he's a Cardassian, he had that station built. He reigned from it. He loves it. Every time you see him getting control or even having an overnight stay, it's like, oh, my God. Uh, so there are different ways you can look at it as home. And, but Dukat is rejected. And, and Cisco leaves and will always be there. I mean, that's what Deep Space Nine station is. Doesn't say people nobody wants a homeland or should have a homeland, but having a homeland has certain kind of costs, um, as far as lots of different people getting along, and not DS9, Derek Nor not being a home is, is a positive in some ways. Is a social space where things can happen that aren't going to happen anyplace else, but not necessarily a place that people live forever because that would. That would destroy the idea of what it is. It isn't a place you live forever. But what? But if you're there, it's as much home to you as anybody else. Hmm. Okay, fantastic. So just the last, well, last question on the essay anyway is, do you think there's anything that I've sort of missed? Is there anything you'd like to talk about that you think I've sort of missed as a, a theme in the essay or anything you'd like to add, really? I haven't missed a theme in the essay, but my, my other major writing on Deep Space Nine is the chapter on it in my book on all the Star Trek series. And uh, what I like about the show, and I think to a certain extent the station embodies this, um, everyone always talked about, unlike the Starship shows, <laughs> you had to come back there. You couldn't just hop off the planet, solve a problem, and if there were unintended consequences, you had to deal with them. You just, oh, you were somewhere else. Um, and that goes with character that a lot of Deep Space Nine on the personal side is that 
everybody is this accumulation and agglomeration of all kinds of identities. Uh, your past never goes away. Um, and uh, so you have a lot of metaphors along. I mean, the Dominions, are, of course, and Odo are shapeshifters, that Bashir was actually an, an average, maybe below average kid, and his parents got him fixed, so he was a super genius. Uh, that it turns out when Cisco's mom was carrying him, a prophet was riding along, I suppose you'd say, uh, and that he has a different identity than he thinks. And, down to second skin where Kira has to decide whether she's actually a Cardassian who was altered to look like a Bajoran. I mean, Dukat, and it's very fitting, finally has himself altered to look like a Bajoran because he wants to be more Bajoran than the Bajorans and have them love him uh, and all these things. And so uh, I'm interested in how people's identity form. And I think where you consider yourself an inhabitant of is part of that. But it's the inescapability of the past and the sort of Walt Whitman-like idea of containing multitudes uh, for the characters there. And particularly coming after TNG, which for the regulars, that was not their strong point, if I may be diplomatic. Um, they were flat, and they served to illustrate things by coming in contact with other civilizations that had certain problems. Uh, they themselves, because Roddenberry didn't want them to be fighting and, you know, acting like other in Cork or, <laughs> you know, uh, certainly not sitting around with a bunch of uh, hostile Klingons and, you know, having fights about things. Uh, because of that, uh, they had to be, they were made to be flat and, frankly, not interesting unless you put them in the context of whatever problem they were solving. Uh, and I had not liked that. I thought on TOS, they're characters were a little more conflicted. And that Deep Space Nine was just, you know, keep digging and you'll find more. And so that's what I really liked about it, why I've written on it. Okay, well, fantastic. Thank you for talking about the essay. I've just got a, a question that's come up in my mind, actually. Um, um, the new series, has have you been watching Discovery and Picard, etc.? And has that sort of, have you got a... I've never missed a minute of any Star Trek, although with Prodigy, I think it's stupid. I have to decide. <laughs> yes, what did you want to ask about them, sir? Well, I just wonder if there's an essay brewing from any of that. Is there? What, have you seen themes that are interesting to you? Uh, in the? I mean, I, I like them okay, but no, nothing has right now perked up. Uh, I, I think they have you know, lots of good things about them. Picard is, of course, you might as well just be talking about TNT because it's still that. Um, I, I'm, I was always interested uh, most in data in TNG. And, of course, the ideas about artificial intelligence and artificial life and, you know, who is, I mean, I'm sure they're answering it in the second scene. Who's Picard now that he's in some android body? I mean, is there any difference? Uh, but probably I'll just, you know, keep mining the old, the old series that I've seen 20 times. And I, I don't watch the new ones even twice usually. But, so I don't feel quite the expert I do on my regular stomping grounds. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed that. It's really interesting. I found the essay. Yeah, I found the essay really interesting. And it really got me thinking about DS9 and the, and the way the story is told. And, so yeah, just a 
big thank you. Thank you for your time. And thank you for uh, joining me.